0: Welcome to the P4C Podcast. We are excited to reshare with you the last 12 years of teaching through God's Word at Passion for Christ Summit. Each P4C year is full of rich truths for your life, and we know you will be blessed. Our new series will be from P4C 2018, Life to God Be the Glory. We now join Charles Cavanaugh for the first message. We hope you are encouraged and challenged. I always have the privilege of preaching to the graveyard shift. I would fuss at you if you nod off, but I can't because I often nod off. I am the chief of nodders. I never tire of this, and I don't know how long the Lord will allow us to do it. It's been a good 10 years, 11 conferences, and we never leave saying, well, that was a bummer. Never. We've never left and said, well, that didn't go well. By the grace of God, by the goodness of God to us, every time we leave, we say, wow, that was, that was so good. God blessed again. And, and it's a blessing to be with you and to worship with you and to have fun with you, have fellowship with you, to hear what God has and His providence brought you to. Um, And all of that and more is uh, a blessing to us, the people that have become a part of this annual thing and then those who are new who come. So good to have my pastor here for the third time and I appreciate him investing his time and effort to be with us and staying the whole whole time. And uh, uh, I'm grateful uh, for all these things. My wife, who uh, both of us, Starting to feel the um, creeping ravages of age, and uh, you know, as she jumps into stuff there at the house and um, just all my, my son, my daughter-in-law um, it's it's a good thing to give thanks to the Lord. <coughs> As we come to the last message of our week, it's always with some hope of a a sort of a send-off, a sense of, well, we heard all this, so what? And sometimes we've dealt with some really important theological themes, and even that has come up here, even in the midst of what we would call a more practical, uh, life-centered approach this year. But it's all practical. All God's Word is practical. And so today, we... uh, we are thinking about the gospel of peace in the way of conflict. And I want to go back to, I think everyone here will be at least familiar with David, if not this story. But uh, David was the first great king of Israel. Um, And he made Israel a force with which to be reckoned in the ancient Middle East. Israel was just a small... uh, beleaguered uh, tribe or collection of tribes of people and attacked by the Philistines and the others in the area. Sort of a punching bag. Uh, winning some of the victories, sometimes feeling like they were the lost sheep that kept getting attacked by the wolves. But David changed that by the grace of God. Um, and as a king and a warrior, David had many enemies. So he, he valued his friendships highly. As he was moving as God was by his providence, moving Saul away from the kingship and preparing for David to ascend to the kingship, uh, David made some enemies and some friends. And one of the, the kings who was his ally against Saul was a man whose name was Nahash. He is called in Samuel, Nahash the Ammonite. And the Ammonites, uh, Nahash had been a a crucial ally and had forged a friendship David never forgot. Uh, The the irony of that is that Nahash was an Ammonite and should have been David's enemy. Um, But it's funny how um, there's a line in a a show I watch it says, The enemy of your enemy is your friend. And that's sort of the way it was with Nahash. Well, the time came when Nahash died. And David was grieved for Hanan, the son of Nahash. And so he gathered a group of men to go on his behalf and pay respect uh, to Hanan. But instead of receiving this ambassage as the Token of peace and goodwill, it was meant to be. Hanan listened to the suspicious and ill willed leaders around him and rejected David's overture. He treated the peace committee, if we want to call them that, disrespectfully and sent them back in shame and disgrace. The Old Testament scriptures, if you read uh, 2 Samuel 10, I think it is. Uh, you 'll see the context there, and some of the things that happened. A shaven face was not to be had among Jewish men, and uh, so they took them, they shaved half their faces and then cut their clothes off right at the middle of the hips and sent them back that way. Well, they couldn 't go back. they had to hide. and so David sent word for them to wait till their beards grew out and then come back. But as you might imagine, David was not happy. But that's another story, really, That where it ends for us. Now, I do encourage you to go back and read that and then read the ensuing battle. And you guys, there's a word in there for us uh, from Joab and uh, his brother as they fought the battle against the Ammonites there. I would encourage you. It was a really exciting and challenging word. But um, in some ways, we are like that peace committee that David gathered and sent. Uh, We've been sent by our king with overtures of peace, offering nothing but goodwill. With an offering of God's riches in Christ, moved only by a heart of God-given compassion, we offer peace, yet are confronted with conflict. And while the human heart has always resisted the truth of the gospel, nothing's new in that respect under the sun, it does seem that the conflict is escalating. And so how are we to bring this gospel of peace in a life so fraught with rejection and conflict in a way that so um, genuinely is strong with conflict. This is the challenge of the seventh beatitude which we're going to refer to. We're not going to stay there. We're going to another place I think that will expound that concept. The seventh beatitude says blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And you might say well why would peacemakers be called the sons of God? Because God's son came to bring peace. So what God's son did, his sons do. Ladies included. This is the challenge Paul faced. And calls us to embrace. So let's seriously think for the next few moments about the biblical call to embrace the peacemaker's mandate. Embracing the peacemaker's. Mandate Turn with me, if you will, to Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 14. It, it is a passage you will probably recognize, and especially one verse that maybe may be for some of you a favorite verse or a life verse. Second um, Corinthians chapter five, verse uh, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, that those who live should not from now on live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, wherefore, from now on we know no man after the flesh. Yes, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet from now on we know him Thus, no more. Therefore, if any one is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, to this and that, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sinned. For us, him who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Embracing the peacemaker's mandate. Now there are messages galore in this passage. We're going to focus on the concept of blessed are the peacemakers for they are the sons of God. They should be called the sons of God. We're going to talk about this um, message of peace, this uh, challenge of bringing peace in a way strewn with conflict. The first thing I want us to notice in this chapter, in this passage, is the problems facing the peacemaker. The problems facing the peacemaker. Any ambassador faces challenges and problems. Cultural, ethnic, economic issues, and differences present problems even in the most friendly environments, if you watch the news at all, you've seen some of that just recently, as our president has sent the secretary of state as an envoy to, to try to, um, deal with certain issues that are of interest to both countries. In that situation, but if the envoy of peace enters the ho- the home of his enemy, the problems are greatly increased. They become problems of the heart and mind then and not just problems of features and finances for us the problems are even greater for us who would embrace the peacemakers mandate the problems are even greater and the stakes are higher because the stakes the issues are spiritual and eternal And so it is good for us to know the problems. If we're to embrace the peacemaker's mandate, it is good for us to know the problems we will face, the basic problems. Now, in reality, as you read this passage, and I I thought through this because, as I said earlier in one discussion or one message, I don't want to say something the passage doesn't say. I think if you look with me, you'll see that there's some things both very obvious in the passage, right at the front, there's some things that are necessarily implied in a part of this passage. And so, Paul begins by dealing with this issue, and this is something we have to face, a problem we have to face. This is the problem of mortality. Now, mortality at its basic meaning has to do with death. Mortician, they deal with dead bodies. If you've ever been mortified, you just feel like you would die, right? And we've been called to mortify the deeds of the flesh, put them to death, kill them, stab them, step on them. So the idea, the concept behind mortality is that of death. And it would seem that man's mortality would concern him enough to drive him to God and to salvation. But in his natural state, it has the opposite effect. Now maybe I should explain why I deal with mortality because Paul here deals with the idea of death as it pertains to the Christian dying with Christ and uh, that Christ died for all, that all that in, in the context is the all he died for and he died for all that, uh, that means that they died with him and, and that they died that they would no longer live for themselves. But in that is implicit this whole concept of mortality. The sense of death that we are very much alive to sin but we're dead to spiritual things. And we, we are not only dead to spiritual things but we are dying physically. This is a temporary existence for us. The people we go to with the gospel are not going to be here forever. Although they may sometimes act as though they are. And so life with a relatively short existence... And people left with a very relatively short existence seek to fill that existence with temporal things. uh, People succumb to what is known as the Epicurean ethic. Have you heard of that? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. So people live that way. They may not espouse it and say it out loud but that's the way they live if we're not careful we can live that way we can get caught up in the daily temporalness of the paycheck and the stuff that we think that way well that's what we face we face a people who don't think in terms of dying to sin and don't even think in terms of their own mortality as being a motivation for eternity they think of mortality as a an enemy that they must stave off until they can get all they can and can all they can get until it comes till death comes This is largely the philosophy of humans outside of Christ. It may come in different forms, but the essence is the same. Fill this earthly existence with fun and stuff, then go wherever it is you go when you die. Now, this is a problem for us. If you'll be a peacemaker, this issue of mortality is an issue. And then there's the issue of depravity. And depravity has to do with this fleshly corrupt existence. Paul refers to depravity, at least indirectly, in this text when he says, they should no longer live unto themselves. These who died with Christ should no longer live to themselves. Which implies that people by nature do what? They live unto themselves. They don't live for God. They don't even live for others. Primarily, they live for themselves. Then he uses the phrase, uh, we regard no one after or according to the flesh. Why did he have to make that distinction? Because we naturally look at people according to the flesh. We naturally um, (coughs) live unto ourselves. This is depravity. This is sinful depravity. And Paul, of course, is speaking specifically here of believers, but what once was true of believers is the natural state of all outside of Christ. The problem we face as Christ commissioned peacemakers is that our audience uh, suffers from complete sinful depravity. Not just mortality, but depravity. They live to themselves. They regard things according to the flesh. This is their viewpoint. This is their perspective. Do you think you know, do you really think, just think about this, I think it's a question. Do you think you really know how sinful you are? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperate looking. Who can know it? I mean, I get just a glimpse of my sinfulness sitting here trying to worship. I can't sing. But I don't have a clue, really. So... Think about lost people, unconverted people. They have no clue how sinful they are. They're depraved, they're blind, they're lost. They view things according to the flesh. And then there's a third problem here, implicit here. And all of these are more implicit than explicit, but they're there, underlying Paul's discussion and argument. The third is hostility. You see, the problems with the peacemaker and the problem that he or she faces is not just a benign mortality and depravity. Oh, well, I mean, people are what they are, right? No, it's not just that. But it's also a resulting in very active hostility toward God, Christ, and the gospel of peace. That's why it was necessary for God to reconcile us to himself. Do you see that? Why the word reconciliation? Why even bring up reconciliation? Because God had to reconcile us to him because we're his enemies. Reconciliation denotes enmity that must be dealt with. Thus the envoy of peace. Thus the ambassador who goes to the country. He goes because there's either enmity or the possibility of enmity that must be dealt with. And so men and women are hostile. We are not naturally at peace with God. Depraved and mortal humans do not embrace the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul quotes the psalmist in a litany of biblical citations that show the peacemaker what he's actually facing what she is actually facing there is none righteous no not one there is none who understands there is no one who seeks after god they are all gone out of the way they have together become unprofitable there is none who does good no not one their throat is an open tomb with their tongues they have used deceit the poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and deceit and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. The way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is what we face. Now, does that mean every single person you try to show the gospel with is going to spit in your face and pull out a a knife and uh, become the assassin that Dave uh, pretended to be the other night beside my wife? No, they won't all do that. They won't be as hostile as they can be, but they are at enmity with the gospel and with Christ. You must know this as you embrace the peacemaker's mandate. And this, in a nutshell, is the problem we face. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have questions about P4C, visit our website at p4csummit.org or you can email us at info at p4csummit.org. We hope you can join us next week on the P4C podcast as we listen to part two of this message. May God bless you as you seek to passionately live for His glory each and every day.